Father, we come to you this morning reminded that our life hangs upon your words, that your words are life-giving, that your words are also life-changing, and it is your word that we need to hear. In the midst of all of the noise and all of the ideas that we hear, that we're bombarded with, we need again to clearly see what your word has to say to us this morning. So would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word? Would you unite our heart to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt misunderstood in your life? Now, obviously, the answer is yes, for we have all experienced many things in our life. I remember when I was a teenager, I felt the Lord was calling me into ministry. And I was listening to John Piper and how he would get in trouble with parents because he told children or he was speaking about the Great Commission and children would come up to their parents and say, Mom and Dad, I want to go overseas and be a missionary and live for the glory of Christ and do great things for him, which meant that they would leave their home, the American dream, and go overseas. As God was calling me to ministry at the age of, of 17, I, I recall these moments where I would be surrounded by my peers but feel that I was completely alone. Because like no one really understood the gravity of what was going on in my heart, in my life, the gravity of eternity, the darkness of souls, the great mission that God has called us to as a church. It was probably a season of life where I would say that not even my parents understood what was going on in my life until the day I probably told them that I would desire to go to seminary. And then it all made sense. But I could find solace in God alone because he and I were in such great harmony. And so I want to ask you, have you had a moment in your life feeling that although you're surrounded by so many people, there are parts of your life that people don't understand. There are parts of your life that are unknown to others, that although it seems like people know you on the outside, there's a deeper part of your soul that is yet undisclosed, or when it is disclosed, it is not understood. Maybe these deep things in our hearts are the loss of a child in miscarriage, or the hurt and pain of a spouse who's not with you 100% in the things of life. Maybe it's the fact you want to go overseas as a missionary, but your parents desire for you to go to college and get a degree. Or that you're connected with so many people and you're fellowshipping, but you don't really have any deep and meaningful relationships, and that is what you're lacking. There are many ways we can be misunderstood, and, the, and we are misunderstood, but one thing is for certain that when I think about being misunderstood, I think about God who understands everything that goes on in our life and who also understands us better than we can understand ourselves, for He created us. He knows all of our worries and He knows all of our desires. He's the one who knit us in our mother's womb, the one who collected our tears in a jar, the one who's canceled the list of sins that stood against us. So you see, God, our Father, knows each pain, struggle, and desire that you have. And what is even more amazing is that he sent Jesus Christ into this world, who is the exact imprint of his nature, to live a life fully human so that he can be a compassionate high priest, meaning he can relate with everything that you and I go through in our life on a daily and weekly basis because he was fully human and he was fully God. Why am I talking about being misunderstood? 
Well, in the passage that we read this morning, this is exactly what is happening to Paul as he has his face set towards to Jerusalem, but he continues to meet believers who do not fully understand him. Two times in our passage, we see that they tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem because hardships and imprisonment await him, and it is even through the Spirit they're telling Paul not to go, but one thing was not disclosed to them, which was Paul's heart. We read it in verse 13. The deepest desire of his heart was unknown to them. Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? They didn't know how far Paul was willing to go in following Christ. He explains and says, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was not seeking the easy path. He wasn't seeking the comfortable path. He was set on doing the will of the Lord. He was set on doing the will of the Lord that was a hard path that would lead him to pain and suffering. And although the obstacles of even fellow believers got in the way, Paul still continues to do the will of God. As we're looking at our passage, the natural question arises this morning for us. Are we willing to do the will of the Lord no matter what obstacles come our way? Are we willing to do the will of the Lord when things become uncomfortable, hard, or even when we're put under pressure to follow Christ? Are we willing and glad to follow Him in, on the mountaintops, as we sing in the song Shepherd, as we are in the valleys that He at times walks us through? You see, our passage this morning, as we're going to be studying, it goes beyond simply Paul. It points to someone else who was willing to do the will of the Father to the end. This passage reminds us of Christ. Some commentators call this passage this morning that we read, these 17 verses, Paul's Gethsemane, because it mirrors so much of Christ before the cross. The believers who could not persuade Paul to not go to Jerusalem say, let the will of the Lord be done. Echoing Christ's words in Gethsemane, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Paul being misunderstood by the believers that he meets at Tyre and Caesarea is an example, a mirror image of Christ being misunderstood by the disciples. And we know this passage and we remember when Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he'll rise. <clears throat> but their reaction they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. <laughs> because their expectations was that he was going to be the one who was going to be enthroned and uh, overcome Rome and they would be finally free. Throughout our passage, I'm going to be highlighting these connections that we see between Paul and Christ. And so my proposition this morning, the idea that I want us to look at together is navigating life's obstacles. Paul's determination to fulfill the mission of Christ. Navigating life's obstacles. We come across obstacles in our life that deter us from doing the will of God. So how do we navigate them? What should be the desire of our heart? What should be the direction? And my desire, like Paul and like Christ, is that we will continue to fulfill God's will on earth. And so I, may our pastor this morning encourage us May it strengthen us to follow God's will in sanctification and missional living and family life and church life. As we look at our passage, we see three sections. We see in the beginning that Paul meets opposition in two places, in Tyre and Caesarea. 
Now, this, as we look at this, we see that it's not something that Paul's experienced for the first time. In a previous passage, as we were studying last week, we remember that he knew what was already going to happen to him. He said, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, as he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, not knowing except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know what's going to happen. Imprisonment and affliction are awaiting me. Paul knows what awaits him, but we read here he is constrained by the Spirit. He can't do anything else other than fulfill the will of God in his life, and this is key. He is bound. He has no other choice. His face is set towards Jerusalem, and that's where he's going to go, no matter what obstacles come his way. And in our last section, in verse 17, we read and we know that this was God's will all along because the closing resolution says this, when we had come to Jerusalem, in verse 17, the brothers received us gladly. And so now let's take this one by one, each section that Paul is in in Tyre and Caesarea, and then finally as he reaches Jerusalem, and let us look with Paul how we can navigate life's obstacles that come our way. First, we see that Paul was misunderstood in Tyre. Now, if you're looking for a very detailed PowerPoint, you will not find one here this morning. Um, I, it's hard for me to do detailed PowerPoints. I know Pastor Rod has detailed PowerPoints and he does well with them. I've been struggling with them, so I've made them very simple this morning. So you can look less on the PowerPoint and more this way because I'll be preaching to you. But let's look at the map. As we look at the map, we see Paul's journey. We see here that chapter 20 closed with the Ephesian elders kneeling down and praying. They embrace Paul and they kiss him. And Paul is leaving Tyre and uh, moving, he's moving towards Tyre and Caesarea. So Paul leaves Miletus, which is on the left side of the map. And Luke is recording a number of places that Paul is sailing through. And most likely he's on a coasting vessel because he stays near land. And a coasting vessel would be a smaller vessel that couldn't really go out much into the sea because of the waves. So first he goes to Kos, which is 40 miles south of Miletus. We had a meeting with the Ephesian elders. Then Rhodes, then Patara. And from Patara, which is that island that you see, uh, he goes all the way down to the bottom, which you probably cannot see the exact wording, but that is where we find Tyre. It's 400 miles straight across the sea, to the land, which is going to be close to Jerusalem. So this would be about five days of a journey that we read here in our first few verses. So Paul arrives at Tyre, and this is a main port for merchant traffic between Asia and Palestine. And this is where the ship stopped to unload its cargo, and it would take about a week. So what does Paul do when he has a week of free time, and he goes to a city that he has not been at before? He goes and finds some believers to fellowship with. <laughs> this is exactly what we are drawn to as well when we come to Christ, the fellowship of the saints. Paul doesn't know anybody there. He had not had any contact with believers at Tyre. But he stays there seven days, and he is fellowshipping with them and sharing life together. And in verse 4, we read that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So somewhere in their conversation of Paul sharing his testimony to Paul then sharing where he is headed, they found out that he was going to suffer 
and he's going to experience hardship. And so they are telling, it says here in kind of a present tense, they were telling for a period of time Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now imagine you are Paul. You've set your face towards Jerusalem. This is where God is calling you to. You meet a group of believers that you haven't met before at Tyre. You share with them what God is doing in your life, and they say, stop, don't go. (laughs) Probably some kind of discouragement would have been in Paul's heart. But also I think here there's a conflict that arises as we're looking at verse 4. How is it that through the Spirit they're telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, yet it is the Spirit that is revealing to Paul that he's going to suffer for Christ? The idea here and how we reconcile these differences is understanding what it means through the Spirit. The idea through the Spirit is the idea of under the influence of the Spirit. Paul knows that he's going to go suffer for Jesus in Jerusalem. And so the believers here at Tyre are just learning by the Spirit, through the Spirit, revealing to them the coming hardships of Paul. The Spirit is informing them what is going to happen. That is what it means through the Spirit. They found out because the Spirit revealed, and they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now what's interesting here, as we look at this passage from just a human standpoint, is man's natural reaction to hardship. Our natural reaction to hardship. And what is that? It's simply to bypass it. It's simply not to go to the hard places that God might call us to go to. This is what the believers are doing. Do you remember Christ's conversation with Peter before he's going to the cross as Christ has set his face to Jerusalem, to Golgotha? And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter, who knows it all, took Jesus aside and told him, Jesus, this is not supposed to be happening to you. This is not God's will for you in your life. Right, we could fill fill in the blank. What is Peter telling? He is rebuking Jesus. No, this must not happen to you. We're waiting for you to be the coronated king. But turning and seeing his disciples before them all, he rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What is key here is this last phrase You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. The question is Is it God's kingdom or our kingdom? God's will or our will? When these believers are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, just as they will beg him in Caesarea not to go, they're not thinking about God's will. They're not thinking about the big picture of the Great Commission going forth and coming back to the place that it came out of initially, which was Jerusalem, and then Paul going on his journeys, and then it's going to be ending, which is our last section, in Jerusalem. They're thinking of their own desires. And on a positive note, they're thinking of Paul's welfare, which is a good thing. But again, this shows us that God sometimes takes us to places we do not expect him to take us. That God works in ways that we do not expect him to work. That God does not necessarily do things that are part of our agenda. 
But this is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, is it not? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We lay down our desires, our agenda, and give ourselves fully to the Lord. It reminds me of Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Once you lay down yourself on the once you lay down yourself on the altar and sacrifice yourself to the Lord, a, a sacrifice does not take itself off of the altar and then decide to do something else when things get hard. Once you sacrifice yourself fully to the Lord, you say, Lord, use me as you will in my life for your purposes. These are the examples we've seen earlier in Acts when there were hard choices of obedience like Peter, when he's told not to preach Christ and he says, we must obey God rather than men, continuing to do the will of God in a hard circumstance. They know God's will and they take a firm stand. I want to take you a little bit into history, just a few hundred years ago, and introduce to you a man named John Patton. John Patton was a missionary to New Hebrides, and prior to John Williams and James Harris, who went there in 1839, there was no Christian influence that is recorded. But both of these missionaries, John and James, were killed and eaten by cannibals on the island of Aramanga on November 20th, only minutes after going ashore. Forty-eight years later, John Patton writes, Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. So what does Patton do simply a few years after these previous missionaries are killed on in the New Hebrides? Well, he takes his wife, Mary, and sails from Scotland in 1858 at the age of 33 and comes to these islands. The following year in 1859, his wife and his newborn, after being just one year there, would die of fever, and four years later, he is driven off of this island. He marries in 1864, a few years later, and then serves in the New Hebrides for 41 years. In 1887, Patton records the wider triumphs of the gospel. Some people argued that the Aborigines of Australia were incapable of conversion or civilization, but Patton fought back, and he did so with biblical truth, he writes this, Recall what the gospel has done for the near kindred of these same aborigines. On our own anitum, 3,500 have been led to renounce their heathenism. In Fiji, 79,000 have been brought under the influence of the gospel, and 13,000 members of the church are professing to live and work for Jesus. Talk about going to a hard place when you know that the place is going to be hard because you are compelled by the will of God. You are compelled by the Great Commission, the glory of God going to the nations and knowing the dangers, knowing of the cannibalism, you still go. When he desired to go, one of the elders that he knew said to him, he said, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. And Patton answered and said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can 
but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Talk about faith. Talk about conviction. Talk about knowing what the will of the Lord is and still moving in that direction even when it's hard. As we look at our first few verses, I think naturally the question arises, do we look like, more like Paul in this section who is willing to do the will of the Lord even when it's hard, or do we look more like the believers at Tyre? When it comes down to God calling us to uncomfortable places, are we willing to follow Him? And more so, I think it is this. It's one thing to have God guide you to places where you don't want to go. It's another thing to know that God's will is going to be hard and you're going to stick to it anyways. I think about our lives. I think about family living. When God calls husbands to be the leaders of the home, leading family worship daily, even when you're tired coming home from work because it is God's will and desire for you. As one pastor says that the only thing that a husband needs to do in regards to relationship with his spouse is simply die to self, and that's it, and everything else will fall in place. The dying of self, the training up of children in the right way, instead of only disciplining them when they're doing something wrong, the call of fathers, the call of parents. I think about the church when he calls us to be ambassadors and represent his kingdom and spread his gospel. When he calls us to share life with others, but at times we do not maybe want to commit to that with our time or with our emotion, to bear burdens, to disciple. But this is sacrifice. This is God's will. This is what he calls us to do. Do we respond with Jesus who said, my food is to do the will of the Father? And this is where we see Paul's heart. Their failure to deter him only shows the conviction that God was leading him to Jerusalem. And in our last few verses, in verse 5, we read that when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside of the city. What a beautiful picture. What harmony, what love that they had for Paul only within seven days that it had grown, that their whole families with children accompany Paul to say farewell to them. Kneeling down on the beach, they prayed. What else could you do in this moment? What else could you do when you know that you're sending off a man who's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer for the sake of Christ and for his, his glory and for his fame and for his name? We see that prayer is the best fortification in a time of suffering and trial. Now, as Paul is leaving Tyre, he's going to now set sail and make his way to Caesarea. We quickly notice that this time and occasion in Tyre is not the only time when believers are seeking to stop Paul in going to Jerusalem. But we see he's not moved from the will of the Lord. He's going to have to, again, navigate life's obstacles in fulfilling the will of God. So not only is he misunderstood in Tyre, he's also misunderstood in Caesarea. And here we will get to the heart of what Paul is about, climaxing in verse 
14. But before we get there, let's look at a map to see where Paul had just sailed from. So on the very top, you see that's Tyre. The next city over is going to be Caesarea. He does a quick pit stop one day, and then he goes down to Caesarea, and he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem on his way there. And so in verse 7, we read that he finished the voyage from Tyre, came to Ptolemais, he greeted the brothers, he stayed for one day. After one day, he goes to Caesarea. Now to share a little bit about the city, Paul was familiar with Caesarea. He is familiar with the Christian community there. After Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, he preaches Christ in Damascus. And if you recall the story, the Jews wanted to kill him. And so the, their plot became known to Paul, and they put Paul into a basket and let him out. And he goes to Jerusalem. And even in Jerusalem, when he attempts to befriend the disciples, they're afraid of him because they don't believe that he's a disciple. So Barnabas brought him to the apostles and shared his testimony. Paul continues to preach to the Hellenists there in Jerusalem, and they want to kill him, so he goes down to Caesarea. And so Paul is acquainted with the city. He visits them again in the second missionary journey in chapter 18, we read, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So Paul knows the city. Paul has some friends who are believers in the city like he did in every single city where he planted a church. Paul was, had a long list of workers and a long list of friends, which we read in Romans 16 and in other New Testament epistles. Not only does Paul know the city, but Philip the evangelist who baptized the eunuch was also there. In Acts 8.40, we see that after Philip baptizes the eunuch, he passed through, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And this is who we meet here in verse 8. The next day we departed, came to Caesarea, we entered the house of Philip the evangelist. And there's a detail here that Luke adds that he would want us to know. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Thank you, Luke, for letting us know that they were unmarried and that they could prophesy. And that's it. That's the end. That's their introduction and their conclusion of who they were. Because in the next verse, although they prophesy, a prophet named Agabus actually comes and shares the prophecy of what is going to happen to Paul. I guess what Luke is doing here, he is showing the gifts in the church at that time. Now, women had gifts as well that were used. He had, it was present tense, for unmarried daughters who were prophesying. But it's interesting that they're not the ones who are going to prophesy. It's going to be Agabus. Agabus comes down from Judea, and he speaks about what's going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. We know of Agabus from Acts 11, when he prophesies of the, of the coming famine to Judea. And what Agabus does is very similar to an Old Testament prophet. What he does, he gives an interpretation of the act of what would happen. So Paul, let me show you what's going to happen to you when you come to Jerusalem. Give me your belt, Paul. He takes Paul's belt. He binds his hands. 
He binds his feet and in a visual representation says, Paul, this is what is going to happen to you when you come to Jerusalem. It is through the Spirit that this is happening. He said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Now the reaction of the people is similar to the reaction of those in Tyre. They urge Paul not to go. In verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now what is interesting here in a detail that Luke adds is that he includes himself when he did not include himself at Tyre. It's a little word, we. We heard this. We and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Luke was with Paul as a companion when he was speaking to the elders at Ephesus. When he was at Tyre. But now comes a place where he is seeking to also stop Paul from going to Jerusalem. It's not only those who are distant from Paul, who he just meets, who are becoming a barrier, but even Luke, who's been traveling with him. You see, Agabus does not tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Agabus simply reveals what's going to happen there. This is what prophecy in the Old Testament was about, establishing the reality of the event, the certainty that it would really happen. And now, Luke, seeing that this is going to happen for certain, joins in becoming a barrier to Paul going to Jerusalem and urging him to stay. But look at Paul's reaction, and this reaction is very telling. Paul answered in verse 13, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? That's probably not the reaction that they were expecting him to have. He's, he's in essence telling them, you don't understand. I am ready to even die for Jesus. Do you not, not, not yet know that? I am the apostle, the missionary that planted churches. I've already experienced hardships in my life. What are you doing breaking my heart? Literally, the word breaking here is, why are you pounding away at my heart? This verb is used to washing clothes, and it's referred to when rocks would pound on the clothes to whiten the clothes. So Paul is disclosing what really drives him in his life. For him not to go to Jerusalem means that he would not honor Christ. For him not to go to Jerusalem would be to take away the very purpose and meaning of his life. It's like pounding away at his heart with stones, hurting the real man inside whose desire is to honor Christ in life and in death. And I would say, what a conviction. What a commitment. What a devotion. And on a personal level, must have been very hard for Paul to see Luke, his close companion, not support him in what God is calling him to do. Support that he needed at the hardest moment, his Gethsemane, before he's going to Jerusalem. Come around me, pray for me, encourage me. On the opposite, they urge him not to go to Jerusalem. Imagine the scene. His friends are weeping. Agabus has just spoken. There's an outcry from the people, the friends, the companions of Paul. The camera turns to Paul, and you can see him looking at everyone who 
is in the room. They're pleading with him, trying to convince him not to go, trying to stop him. All eyes are on Paul. What is he going to say? What is he going to do? And he shocks his friends because his life revolves around Christ. And he says, I am ready, given an explanation in verse 13, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with imprisonment. That's the basic first step of what happens when you preach the gospel. That's what's been happening as the church has been growing. So not only that, but I am willing even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how much Christ meant to Paul. That is how, Christ, how much Christ treasured Paul. It's the echo of Paul's same words in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, for Paul, discomfort was the price of a meaningful life. For him, death would be gain because he would be with Christ. And if you were to take everything away from Paul and he only had Christ, he would be the happiest person. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This speaks volumes. This automatically echoes into our hearts and asks us the question, do we see the glory of Christ? Do we see the grandeur of Christ? Do we prize Christ? As Paul is doing here, that we're willing to say words like this. Now, many of us would probably not get to a situation like this in our life but how are we doing in our day-to-day -day living with this? And this is where the believers cannot persuade Paul to stay, and they say, let the will of the Lord be done. This is where the story comes to a climax. All the events have been leading up to this. Will Paul change his mind? Will Paul be dissuaded? But it shows that the whole time, God's will was on his mind, and he was committed to it. And this is where... God's will is not so much for Paul because he already knew what God's will was. God's will was more so for the believers that are surrounding Paul who are wavering in their faith, who are not fully trusting the Lord. And they say, let the will of the Lord be done. They entrust their friend, their missionary, and apostle to God, and they put their trust in the Lord. As I think about God's will, I think about God's will that is perfect, God's will which cannot be thwarted. This is extremely encouraging in our life. When God calls us to do something and it is His will, it is perfect in our life. It cannot be thwarted. God's will sees beyond what we can see. God takes us to places we don't want to go to accomplish in us what we could not on our own. Now, as we think of this passage, it really so eerily similar to Jesus. Christ himself says, for he will be delivered, Christ, to the Gentiles will be mocked, 
shamefully treated and spit upon. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to chief priests and scribes and will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. And like Christ, Paul knew that his face was set. No matter the obstacle, hardship would come his way. In Gethsemane, the last stop before Golgotha, Christ feels the weight of the cross and he cries out to the Father, let this cup pass from me, the cup of wrath of, of your sins and my sins. He knew the human agony of the cross, but nevertheless he committed himself to the purpose, purposes of God. Not my will, but your will be done. So naturally, as we are looking at Paul's example here that Luke is leaving here for us to encourage us and to build our faith, I think to myself, what would have I answered? What would you say? For me to live is fill in the blank this morning. What would be taken away from you that would bring you into brokenness? For me to live is home. For me to live is career. For me to live is my children. What is the thing that drives us in our life? Would we be willing to say yes, knowing what awaits us? And this attitude and conviction is, a, is something that God desires of us as believers, to have a firm foundation in Christ, to see Him as our great treasure, to be ready to sacrifice anything because Christ is worth so much more. Luke brings us to the resolution of the story in our next few verses. We've been on the edge of our seats We've been asking what will happen in Jerusalem. He starts his journey in Jerusalem after some travels. He comes back here, and Luke gives us a breath of fresh air in verse 17. He writes this, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And so lastly, we see that Paul's misunderstood first in Tyre, then Caesarea. And lastly, he's accepted in Jerusalem. He's accepted in Jerusalem. This is where we come to a solution. It's about 64 miles from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Paul shows up here to Jerusalem in our following verses in 18 onward, which we're going to hear about next week. Paul comes to them and he begins to share about God's wondrous work among the Gentiles. And he is received well. And when the believers hear it, they glorify God. But as we read later on in the verses, it is a short seven days. Seven days. And in verse 27, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And so that which the Holy Spirit was revealing this whole time is coming to pass within one week of Paul arriving to Jerusalem. But what we also see here is that Paul convictions, Paul's conviction holds true. Paul knew the ending, and despite that, he still was faithful. In our next many chapters that we're going to be studying, Paul is not going to testify as a free man any longer. He is going to be in chains, but the chains are not going to be able to stop his gospel witness. And one of the more amazing things is Paul is going to be reaching people that he would have never reached with the gospel, people higher up in society that he gets to stand face to face before them and testify what God has done in, in his life. 
And this is how God works in the big picture of things. And this is why we ultimately say, Lord, it's not my life, but it is, it is your life that you have given to me. Use me as you will. Because it is God's narrative and God's story that he is he's writing through our, our life. Paul's example, as I was thinking about it, is a contrast of one other disciple of Christ named Peter, who said he would follow Jesus Christ till death, but when things got tough, he denies him three times. And Luke is showing here for us the faithfulness of Paul. Luke is showing for, uh, to us the determination and the stamina that is needed in following Christ, the single-minded focus to continue proclaiming the glories of Christ. Luke is showing us there will be moments when we know that God's will is hard, but that we should continue following it no matter what the cost. So how can we apply these truths in our life? For us, I think it's an encouragement to see what true faith looks like this morning through the Apostle Paul. It really just challenges our faith this morning. As I was studying this passage, it challenged my faith. I had to ask myself all of these same questions. How much do I treasure Christ? How willing, how willing am I to sacrifice for the glory of Christ? How willing am I to be obedient in the hard times when God calls me to do His will? But I just don't always feel like it because I know it's going to take something out of me to do it. So am I, ready, am I ready to do the will of God when I know the pathway to the destination is going to be hard? I think as people, we always weigh out our choices. We ask ourselves, how much is obedience going to cost me? How much time is this going to take me? How hard is this really going to be? We do that with a lot of life. We do a cost-benefit analysis. And then if it's going to, if the cost is going to outweigh or outweigh the benefits or the benefits are going to outweigh the cost, we say, sure, let's do it. But what about if it's the opposite? What if we don't necessarily like the answer? What if we have to sacrifice more than what we're going to get back? What if we know that things that God calls us to are not going to be easy? How quickly do you take action on those things in your life? This passage also reveals to us that there will even be times in our life when people who are near to us will not always be people who are helping us run the race. Now, there's a fine line here. Obviously, God gives fellow believers wisdom so that they, we can speak truth into each other's life and help to make decisions in life. But at times, it might seem that the thing that God is calling you to might not be understood by the people who are around you. And you might be feeling alone, but you are not because God is with you. God is leading you. And so I want to ask you this morning once again, how are you navigating life's obstacles? I love this truth and this reality that God's will is not going to take us to a place that God's grace is not going to sustain us. That if God is calling us to do something, He's always going to provide the means for us to accomplish it. That He is faithful to His people. Paul's face was set to Jerusalem. He arrives, and throughout all of the trials, God is going to take care of him, is he not? God is going to be his shepherd, like we sang this morning, and guide him, is he not? God will be watching over him to preach to people that would have never been reached if Paul did not continue to do what God had called him to. 
You think about this. Paul would not have made the impact that he made if he simply gave up or stopped when life was hard. I think that's a challenge for us this morning. The impact that we make in our families, in our personal life, in our community as a church is very much related to how willing we are to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And the more obedient we are to Christ and the more we follow along, fall in line with His will, the greater we are living in God's will, in His purposes, in His design, and the greater the impact is going to be in our families, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our community through being the light as a church. This principle has been in my mind recent, in recent times, the cost of obedience, connected with another idea that I heard in a podcast, which says, discomfort is the price of a meaningful life. Discomfort is the price of a meaningful life. And as I think about that phrase, I think about the Christian life, that this is what we're called to do. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow Him. This is what we signed up for. This is what God has called us to. Whether we're talking about motherhood for all the moms who are seeking to train up their children in the fear of the Lord. Whether we're talking about fathers who are seeking to be spiritual leaders in their home, sacrificial husbands to their wives. Whether we're talking about us being workers in the places where we work and doing everything with excellence as unto the Lord. If we're talking about we're taking care of our elderly parents or working hard to build relationships in the church. For Gateway, this means us doing the hard work of multi-generational discipleship, of seeking out the lost with the gospel. Discomfort is the price of a meaningful life. Now, this is not the easy way. This is not the way of Paul, as we see in our passage here this morning. This is not the way of Christ, as we see him in the gospels. And this is not the way of us as believers. The glorious thing is that on this journey, though, we have a Father who will sustain us by His grace, a glorious God who will lift up our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. We have a God who loves His bride and has shed His blood for her, who bought her by His blood and will continue to shepherd her by His grace. I want to close this morning with an illustration of the Father of the modern missionary movement, William Carey. He is best known for the phrase, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And so William Carey sails to India with his wife and three boys. He is in a strange land, and the early years are miserable, as they would be if you took your whole family and went to a whole different country that you've never been before, where you couldn't just hop on a plane and 15 hours later be back in England. He wrote this, quote, no Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply our wants. Well, I have God, and his word is sure. A few Years later, he contracts malaria. His five-year-old uh, son, Peter, dies of dysentery. Dorothy, his wife, has mental health issues. And how long do you think it took William Carey to have one convert in India? 
if you know the story, it's seven years. Seven years of doing the will of God and not maybe seeing the results. Seven years to have one convert. And after many years, only 700 converts in a nation of millions. Talk about America has made sometimes us pretty soft. <laughs> the culture that we live in is about results, results, results right away. Comfort, comfort, comfort. And the Christian life and the life that God has called us to as believers is the opposite. And I say this as I am preaching this, I'm preaching to myself. Where would I be at if I was in the shoes of William Carey? What decisions would I have made? Well, 28 later, years later, he translates the Bible in India's major languages. He sets a foundation for the next workers to join in reaping the harvest. This is a man who, knowing the will of God that it is going to be hard, continues in it for 41 years. A man compelled by the Great Commission, by the glory of Christ to go out to the nations. Now, we're not Carrie. We're not Paul. We're not Patton, but we are little Christs. We're Christians. We're little Christs called to follow in his footsteps, called to live out our calling where we are today in the place that God has planted us. In the ways that we are serving, God is calling, out, calling us to live out this life, the, the, the uncomfortable life, that is meaningful. And so I, I want to ask you once again as we close, are we willing to do the will of the Lord no matter what obstacles come our way? And more so, am I doing, am I willing to be obedient to God's will knowing that it will not be easy? And as we think about all of this, we're also reminded that God will provide all the resources that are needed for us to be able to accomplish His will. And we praise Him for that. Father, we thank You this morning. We thank you for your living and active word, that it is encouraging, that it is convicting, that it is life-giving. Oh Lord, how your word really just stirs up our affections, shows us the greater things in life. And as we come to your word, it, it's like the windshield wipers that take away just the day-to-day -day grind, the hardships of our life, and show us what are what are the more weightier things of life? What are the things that are more important? And this morning you're reminding us to walk in your will, to follow your will even when things get hard in our life. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've sent who lives within us, abides within us, who gives us strength to press on. We thank you, Jesus, that you have set before us the path, that you're the one who has first walked through it, and so we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you despised the, sh the shame and died so that we today may have life. And so now, Lord, we just ask, would you help us? Would you give us the strength to press on in the things that you call us to do in the areas that we are responsible for in our life? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.